Welcome to Above Avalon. This is episode 150, A Larger Apple Machine. Hi, I'm Neil. It's been nearly a month since we last talked to each other, and I do have a good reason for that. Today's episode took quite a bit of time to put together. And of course, I'm also talking about the corresponding weekly article over at AboveAvalon.com titled Johnny Ive, Jeff Williams, and a Larger Apple. Three weeks ago, Apple announced major news when it comes to leadership. Johnny Ive is going to form his own design company and have Apple be a client. We also have Jeff Williams officially being given leadership over the design team. One of my initial reactions to that news was to take my time in thinking about what was just announced. I didn't rush out and do a weekly article. I didn't record a podcast episode. Instead, I wanted to have a few weeks to think about what Apple announced. And as it turns out, with today's episode being the 150th episode of the Above Avalon podcast, I think we end up talking about one of the more important topics that we have ever discussed. We are going to look at what these leadership changes mean about Apple. There's a very crucial question that people have been focused on for the past couple of weeks. Are these leadership changes a result of Apple facing a growth crisis? Do we see Apple trying to change its ways, become a different kind of company in order to grow, in order to get larger? Or are these leadership changes a byproduct of Apple growth? Are these announcements being driven by Apple betting on the machine that it's been relying on? We are going to answer all of those questions in today's episode. In addition, we'll go over some things that I don't think I fully appreciate it when it comes to Johnny Ive and the Apple machine. We will begin our discussion by talking about growth. There have been three broad narratives regarding Apple's growth strategy. Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and the press. Each has been distinctly negative. The first we'll cover is Wall Street. Instead of focusing on Apple's long-term prospects, Wall Street has a history of focusing on the near term, the quarter-to-quarter fluctuations that are driven by unit sales. This is why when Apple announced that it was moving away from disclosing unit sales, Wall Street was not pleased. Apple management received severe pushback regarding that decision. Why? It forced observers to take a longer-term view of the company. Even today, we see many analysts still remain focused on unit sales. Apple upgrades and downgrades are being driven by unit sales projections. And we'll see if that changes going forward, but I tend to think no. (laughs) Now, as an analyst myself, unit sales are an interesting item to track. However, I think in order to get value out of unit sales, you have to put them in context. So if unit sales for iPhone are down 10%, what does it actually mean? Unit sales ends up being just one piece of the puzzle. 
The problem is a lot of people on Wall Street don't really care about that puzzle. They just want to look at unit sales. And accordingly, when they look at the iPhone business, and you could even include the iPad and Mac business, they don't see growth. They don't track how the install basis for each product category are increasing. They don't necessarily track how different upgrade cycles are impacting things. Instead, you see a lot of people saying that people must be leaving the install base to go to lower cost competitors. All of this amounts to Wall Street having major doubts when it comes to Apple's growth story. The next narrative regarding Apple growth is found in Silicon Valley. So while Wall Street looks at Apple's growth story in terms of unit sales, Silicon Valley thinks in terms of user data. The companies collecting the most user data are considered to have the most formidable business models and growth prospects. Now, we're not just talking about the giants like Amazon and Google, but a lot of people have been talking up content distribution plays like Spotify and Netflix. Simply put, Silicon Valley's concern with Apple is that the company will find itself at a major disadvantage due to its privacy stance. The way the company thinks about user data is positioned as a liability, not an asset. The third broad narrative regarding Apple growth is found in the press. Nearly every news article written about Apple now contains boilerplate language about slowing iPhone sales, causing management to become desperate for new growth options. There is this desire of painting Apple as being filled with lots of internal drama. We see this characterization of management becoming profit-hungry. Everything they do is to try to maximize profits. At the same time, the picture paint is one of a company suffering from an identity crisis. It's hard to keep track of the number of publications that describe Apple as a services company. And the reason they say that is they think services are the company's only viable growth story going forward. Given all of those narratives regarding Apple and growth, it came as little surprise that most of the reactions to this news involving Johnny Ive and Jeff Williams reflected existing viewpoints. Those who thought Apple was becoming a services company viewed Johnny's departure as evidence of such a trend. Meanwhile, you have others looking at Jeff Williams' expanded role over product development as a sign of Apple shedding its design skin. People unconvinced of Apple's ability to innovate looked at these leadership changes as the latest attempt to try to achieve innovation post-Steve Jobs. Notice the common theme, though, found with all of those reactions. It's ultimately a narrative that Apple finds itself in trouble. And dramatic changes to the Apple machine are needed to reinvigorate growth. There is no better symbol of this dynamic than the Wall Street Journal's article on the subject. We had this insider tell-all tale that ended up being a narrative-driven attempt to connect a series of unrelated dots some inaccurate or grossly mischaracterized, to paint a picture of a company on the brink. 
After reading through the article the first time, I was just shaking my head because there were point after point that just simply didn't make any sense. There's other reasons why I had my doubts regarding some of the reporting, which I won't go into this episode, but needless to say, I don't think the article was correct. I think it was off the mark. It ended up being so off the mark that Tim Cook responded to the article, something that just doesn't happen too often. So while all of those different reactions were floating around regarding the leadership news, my approach was pretty simple. I looked at Johnny's evolving role within Apple over the past eight years. So that would bring us all the way back to Apple Watch development. Doing so revealed that this latest news wasn't in planning for years, contrary to popular opinion. I saw a few people saying, well, Johnny, I've actually left four, five years ago. Instead, there was evidence of Johnny and Apple working to find a more sustainable path forward. I did publish a daily update that included my full analysis regarding Johnny's evolving role at Apple that's available to Above Avalon members. I'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of the episode. So once I had evidence of Johnny and Apple looking to find some type of sustainable dynamic or relationship or path going forward, I asked myself, what was driving this search for sustainability? And I think it all came back to Apple's growth story. Apple's immense growth over the years had become a burden on Johnny. Instead of measuring Apple's growth using unit sales or revenue, two metrics that ultimately are impacted by a product's upgrade cycle and average selling price, a better approach is to track the total number of users in the install base. That ends up reflecting the significant impact the gray market has had on Apple's growth story in recent years. Even though Apple may not be selling more iPhones each year, the gray market has led to more people using iPhones. And so what I did was I tracked Apple's install base growth over time, beginning from Apple Watch development. This is when all the pieces started to come together. It started to make sense. Apple's install base looks nothing like it did when Johnny began Apple Watch development in late 2011, or even a few years ago when he was promoted to chief design officer in 2015. Over in this week's article, Exhibit 2, I have my estimates for Apple's install base each year from 2011 to 2019. Back in 2011, there were 180 million people in the Apple install base. Four years later, in 2015, there were 650 million people in the Apple install base. Four more years, a billion people in the Apple install base. So the Apple install base grew by more than five times in just eight years. That contains various implications for Johnny and Apple there's an undeniable larger thirst for tools capable of changing people's lives. Back in 2011, 
Apple sold 170 million devices. Apple's on track to sell 320 million devices this year. The days of focusing much of the company's top talent and resources on one major new product initiative are in the rearview mirror. Apple now finds itself having to lead multiple teams, massive teams, pursuing different paradigm shifts at the same time. The leadership changes Apple announced three weeks ago regarding Johnny Ive and Jeff Williams weren't driven by any one product. Instead, the changes amount to a recognition of how much Apple has grown over the years. Not only has the overall design team grown, but the expectations placed on Johnny had continued to increase. For a creative like Johnny, having a company with a billion users depend on your every decision ends up being a burden. Expectational debt can be toxic to a creative. We are seeing Apple management make changes to the Apple machine to let it operate as originally intended. What is the Apple machine? What do I mean by that phrase? It's a process. The Apple machine is the process powering the company's design-led organization. This process leverages the power found with small groups. By ensuring that collaboration exists between multiple disciplines and viewpoints in this small group structure, Apple is able to keep the user experience the priority during product development. Johnny and Steve didn't build this machine to be dependent on either one of them. Such a machine would be inadequate and unsustainable. Instead, the machine was designed to take on a certain level of autonomy in order to instill Apple's values in all employees. When we look back over the past 15 years, most of the leadership changes within Apple have occurred in order to let the machine operate as intended. Any obstacles or perceived threats to the machine have been removed. 15 years ago, Apple did well with a management structure that included having one curator oversee most product decisions. The thing is, Apple was a much smaller company in the early and mid-2000s. Apple now finds itself doing a whole lot more. The company is embracing a dramatic change to product strategy, in which management is pushing all major product categories forward at the same time. We talked about this in detail last episode. Episode 149, Letting Go of the Rope. That kind of product strategy has never occurred before. We have Apple moving deeper into content distribution services, and that includes coming up with original content. Apple thinks it has something to add to the mix in terms of data privacy and curation that other companies don't have as much of an incentive to uphold. It may still seem crazy to say, but Apple TV Plus can stand out from the competition because of Apple's data privacy stance. We don't even really think about it yet in those terms. 
Apple's annual R&D expense has grown by nearly seven times in just the last eight years. It reflects a company investigating many more ambitious ideas and technologies. The takeaway from the Johnny and Jeff Williams news, and this is something that I did not fully contemplate up until three weeks ago, is that the Apple machine is operating at such speed and scale, it's not realistic to think one person can control or run the machine. Instead, we see Apple fine-tuning the machine to allow for greater autonomy. There's a certain level of irony here found with realizing this or having this become clear to me only after news of Johnny taking a much different role in this Apple machine going forward. Simply put, the Apple machine's ability to automate has been grossly underestimated over the years, while the idea of any one individual needing to oversee the machine 24-7 has been overestimated. At this point, I think a more concrete example would be extremely helpful and valuable. One example of the Apple machine possessing a certain level of autonomy is seen with the structure involving Jeff Williams and Apple design. At first, given Williams' control over the design team seems like a formidable task based on size and scope. How is he going to do this realistically? However, the structure makes more sense when considering the degree of autonomy that exists in design and within other teams at Apple. It's not that Jeff Williams is moving into some kind of product czar role and that every decision has to be run by the same gatekeeper. Such a structure isn't sustainable given Apple's size. Instead, designers of various disciplines have been given greater say over the user experience. While Jeff Williams works with the heads of industrial design and human interface design to ensure everyone remains on the same page. All of that is the opposite of this one man, one woman theory for Apple. The idea that if Apple doesn't have a Steve Jobs figure, Innovation dies. That entire narrative is wrong. That's not the Apple machine. It is not built around one person. That's the main takeaway from all of this news regarding Johnny Ive, Jeff Williams. Apple isn't shedding its culture and becoming a different kind of company. The exact conclusion that the Wall Street Journal tried to push Instead, we see a company that is betting on the machine it's been relying on. It's fine-tuning the process that Steve Jobs and Johnny Ive helped to create. The clearest piece of evidence that these latest leadership changes aren't being driven by some kind of growth crisis is that Apple already has a working growth story. It includes three parts. The first... Position the iPhone and iPad as the strongest sources of new users into the ecosystem. The second, position wearables as alternatives to the iPhone and iPad. The third, come up with services that add value to Apple hardware in the broader Apple ecosystem. 
In 2019, Apple will likely add approximately 50 million people to the iPhone install base. And that's despite unit sales being down by about 14%. A large opportunity for Apple is appealing to the percentage of the install base that still only use one Apple device, an iPhone. That percentage is at least 40%. In reality, it could be significantly higher than 40%. The iPad install base will grow by about 30 million users in 2019. Apple is unveiling its most aggressive services rollout to date. And of course, we have Apple's wearables platform, where Apple Watch and AirPods adoption continues to grow. This is a platform that has significant momentum. There isn't a need for Apple to build an entirely new machine powering product development. Instead, what we see is Apple making modifications to let the machine operate more efficiently. Additional brackets and supports are being added. Parts have been swapped out for improved components. Apple is betting on the existing machine in order to remain a design company. That's the Apple advantage. By focusing on design, by having the user experience be the most important thing, Apple can approach new industries, new product categories in ways that other companies simply cannot. This idea of referring to Apple as whatever its top-selling product is. And so the iPhone company, now people are saying the services company, maybe some people may even say the wearables company. The reason all of those kinds of characterizations are wrong is they don't end up describing what actually is driving that success. A product like the iPhone, you include any product that sells in high volume, is a byproduct of the Apple machine. It's not that the iPhone dictates how Apple's culture is going to trend or change going forward. The same thing is found with services. It's not that Apple is becoming a services company where its culture changes. Instead, services are just other tools for people. This is a company that tries to say every single time, hardware, software, services, hardware, software, services. People still just don't seem to want to admit that. I tend to think some people want to paint a picture of a company in crisis. They like the idea of Apple being one thing one year, and now they're trying to change everything to make it a different kind of company. That's my thinking on why some people keep pushing that services narrative over and over and over again. In the future, if we see Apple selling hundreds of millions of wearable devices per year, something that is certainly a possibility, maybe people will want to call Apple a wearables company. But similar to iPhone, a successful wearables platform would be a byproduct of the machine Apple relied on to come up with those new tools, tools that are making technology more personal. It all comes back to Apple being a design company and having a culture 
that is based on having different perspectives and backgrounds and disciplines come together, collaborate, share ideas, agree and disagree with each other, with everyone's focus being on the user experience. We are seeing Apple evolve into a much larger design company. That's the takeaway from the Johnny Ive and Jeff Williams News. That's going to do it for today's episode. For those of you who want more information on this topic, I did publish two daily updates about Johnny Ive and Jeff Williams. Combined, the daily updates came out to 6,600 words. So these are substantial updates that do take some time to work through. In today's episode, we didn't necessarily cover a lot of the details. I wanted to kind of keep things more big picture. Instead, all the details are found in those daily updates. I will include links to the two daily updates in the show notes. They are available exclusively to Above Avalon members. So if you are already a member, just check your inbox. They were sent on July 1st and 2nd. If you're currently not a member and you would like to read those two daily updates, all you have to do is become a member. Just head on over to AboveAvalon.com and then go to the membership page. Once you're a member, you then have access to the archive. So you can go back and read those two daily updates. In addition, you can read all of the previously sent daily updates. There are now approximately 800 daily updates in the archive. Each update is usually about 2,000 words and covers three stories. So if it is of interest to Apple, it is something I pay attention to in the daily updates. I cover everything from Apple business and strategy analysis, my financial estimates, my perspective and observations on current news, Apple competitors, and of course, full coverage of Apple earnings, product events, and keynotes. Just to give you a flavor of the wide variety of topics that are typically covered in the daily updates, all of this is just from this past week. I went over Amazon developing a high-end speaker, a new Apple Glasses rumor, the difference in how the tech industry seems to be approaching foldables versus smart glasses versus self-driving cars, the privacy pushback Apple is receiving from some U.S. politicians, the latest interest in AirPods and Apple Watch, Apple testing the waters for exclusive podcasts. We revisited my smart speaker Mirage thesis, and we tried to quantify that with some new data. The perils of FaceApp, which went viral this past week, and we talked about Netflix and their awful earnings and why I think the video industry smells blood. Everything you need to know about Above Avalon membership, including signing up, is available over at AboveAvalon.com. Go to the membership page. There are two membership options available. It's either $20 per month or $200 per year. Above Avalon is fully sustained by membership. So if you are already an Above Avalon member, thank you for your support. And if you are thinking about becoming an Above Avalon member, thank you in advance. With that, I will conclude today's episode. I will talk to you all later. Bye.